Welcome to Emerging, the official podcast of the Trout Unlimited and Costa Five Rivers program, brought to you by Sims Fishing Products. Emerging is about enabling the young angling community to drive progress in the fly fishing industry and the conservation of the places we love to fish. My name is Joseph Burney, and I'll be your host along with Andrew Lafredo. For this episode, we got a chance to talk with our friends over at Captains for Clean Water about their organization and the steps needed to fix Florida's fisheries. We hope you enjoy it. Well, hello, everyone. We are episode 14, I believe. I think that that's the episode we're on. Uh, hopefully, I will, I'll correct myself uh, in whatever the title is, probably. But for this episode, we have been talking a lot about fresh water. Uh, we're Trout Unlimited. That's, that's our thing. But when it comes down to it, clean water everywhere is something that's super important and making sure our fisheries are clean and we have amazing places to fish. And on top of that, we have clubs down in Florida, big shout out to them, who don't really have access to cold water fisheries all the time. So who better to bring on than people at Captains for Clean Water? We're so excited to have Chris on today. Chris, thanks for coming on, emerging with us. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. For those who don't know you, you mind giving a quick introduction about who you are, where you're from, and um, a little bit about what you're passionate about. Sure. So um, I am a fourth generation native Floridian, um, born and raised, grew up on a little island called Sanibel, and uh, spent my whole life uh, in and around and under the water. Um, that led me to being becoming a fishing guide in, uh, I think it was 1999. And, um, that kind of took me down a path of, of traveling around the country, fishing redfish tournaments and, uh, doing television shows and, and ultimately coming home, um, in 2015, uh, from being on the road and coming home, uh, to, to, I guess, the spring of, of 2016 to a water crisis um, with, from large-scale large discharges from Lake Okeechobee, something that was not foreign to me, something that I had experienced my whole life. and um, but, but it was kind of a wake-up call, you know. I'd been all around to, to very pristine places and, and other places that, uh, that measures weren't taken and, and destruction, you know, was was wreaking havoc and places like Louisiana where they're losing a, you know, football field of marsh every every hour or something. And um, so I came home to that and uh, kind of it was a realization that like something needed to change and and also uh, a moment to look in the mirror and somebody who had had a very successful and long career as a fishing guide on the back of that resource yet i wasn't like involved in trying to fix it and and why was that and and um kind of took us down the path of of what ended up becoming captains for clean water yeah and that's an an awesome origin story there of um starting to guide what's that 22 years ago and 
it's incredible. And the fishery that, that was down there and you hear the stories of what, uh, Florida used to be. And we'll obviously, we'll get into that a lot later into the, into the episode, but it's really, it's really interesting. I think when you come back to anywhere that you've been before and fish it again, you notice the changes now. And it's more so like you see it more often than not now. Like I know the places I've fished in, in high school, they're the same places I fish now and it's just completely different and it's alarming. So you started a little bit on how Captains for Clean Water started there, but you want to go a little more into the origins of how it all got started. Sure. And, you know, I'll say also, you know, you mentioned in the beginning there, you know, the Trout Unlimited and they're, they're great partners of ours and um, how, you know, focus is a lot on rivers. And what we're talking about here is to us is known as the river of grass. It's, it is, it, it, you know, naturally it was a river that started up south of Orlando and, and made its way meandered through the Kissimmee River Valley and into Lake Okeechobee and yeah. then overflow its southern banks and feed the river of grass that made its way down to what is today Everglades National Park and, and ultimately Florida Bay, which lies uh, in between the southern edge of, of the Everglades National Park mainland and the Florida Keys. Um, and a little historical context there is, um, you know, a century ago, this area and parts of area were looked at as, as kind of untamed, worthless swampland. And in the name of progress and with good intentions back then, a whole series of efforts to, to bleed the water off of that land and control it and turn it into something productive um, over the course of, of years and decades resulted in a very disconnected, um, very compartmentalized and um, man kind of made and man, man controlled um, system that we have today. The result there is that, you know, there was a massive area south of Lake Okeechobee that they wanted to turn from the headwaters of, of that river of grass um, and what was basically sawgrass and swamp apple, custard apple uh, forest, um, very, very wet yeah. area. They turned that into farmland. And and uh, today we have, you know, 700,000 acres there that separates Lake Okeechobee from the rest of the Everglades that is uh, primarily grown in sugarcane. And, and uh, the problem uh, with it is, is the, the whole system that was made to be manipulated and managed by man works great. It, it works how it was intended. It works great for that, for that area south there as far as they can keep that area dry when we're in the wet season. So it's not mm-hmm. flooding out, rotting the roots of the plants. And then they are able to keep it wet in the dry season. Um, but in order to do so, it throws off the whole entire balance of the rest of the ecosystem. So when we're in the wet season, Lake Okeechobee can no longer overflow its southern bank and float south into the river of grass. Um, and when we're in the dry season, when water would be historically making its way um, slowly through the river of grass 
that water is is being held in the lake and used as irrigation supply for for that Everglades agricultural area. So the result is pretty simple. It throws off the entire balance of what was one giant ecosystem. Uh, Lake Okeechobee suffers because it's held artificially high in the dry season. Um, therefore, it gets too deep in the wet season, which kills the uh, subaquatic vegetation, um, native vegetation that grows. That's the habitat for all the, that world-class bass fishery. Um, it uh, it the, the water then is, is so high in the lake that at risk of flooding, um, they can no longer send that water south in high volumes uh, with the current infrastructure. So they dump it out the east and west coast, and that absolutely destroys um, those fisheries, uh, not only from the nutrients and pollutants that are in the lake from, from past uh, mm-hmm. polluting by industrial agriculture, but also just the volume of freshwater alone even if the water was perfectly clean, that volume of freshwater alone, it, it turns our fisheries uh, on the coast into freshwater and it kills yeah. the, the saltwater grasses and the oysters. And, and then the water that is going out and damaging the east and west coast naturally was needed and intended down in the southern part of the Everglades in Florida Bay. And so since Florida Bay is not getting that water, um, it gets hypersaline. And uh, and we've you know the result there is, is basically the same as, as making our areas too fresh as you you lose the seagrasses and the oyster bars and the the basis of of the environment there that everything else is sustained upon. Yeah, and with all those those things you're losing, like you're losing the oysters when the the salinity's super low, and losing those grasses who are the, all those things are filtering the water. An oyster can filter. A ton of I I should know the number, but um, so many gallons of water a day that those oysters are filtering and that grass and all of that. I know it well. I was supposed to go up to Charleston this weekend to uh, fish for redfish, and the trip had to be canceled because the river blew out and was blowing all this fresh water into the marsh, and there was no salinity, and then no no fish wanted to be there, and that's just what been, has been perpetually happening down in South Florida for a long time because of the, the water management there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that's something that that's been in the making, you know, for a century, um, back in the eighties, they started to recognize the signs of this. Um, there started an effort to, to fix it. Um, Throughout the 90s, uh, they had planned um, and put together what is today known as the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan. It's basically a suite of 68 projects that's designed to reconnect that system and reconnect the flow of water south to the Everglades um, and reduce the, the discharges to the east and west coast and give some balance back to Lake Okeechobee and and, uh, Kissimmee River area. And so that was voted into law in the year 2000. And uh, it was estimated to be a a 30-year time frame to complete that suite of projects, which is the largest restoration project ever undertaken in the world. So um, here we are 20 years in, and it's way behind schedule. And, And 
as we started to look into this as fishing guides who wanted to see a change, we realized that that was largely because of a lack of political will. And, uh, and that lack of political will was, was really being driven by uh, the industrial sugar industry that wants to keep the system the way it is because it works perfect for them. Yeah. They do not want the change. So they had influenced the political system both at the state and federal level for years, and the result was, was delayed progress. Um, 2015, like I said, came home. 2016, we had this water crisis. And so some fellow fishing guides and I started talking about, you know, we needed to do something and why hadn't we been doing anything. And we realized that um, kind of we didn't really see an outlet for us to, to get involved. There was nobody really leading this from a sportsman's perspective and point of view and um, where it affects not only our, our way of life, but our, our economy and, and our jobs as fishing guides. And um, we started talking to a lot of people. There, was, there had been environmental groups that were fighting for this for a long time. Um, but the message a lot of times I think they were bringing was this is what this is doing to our fish and our marine life and sea turtles and manatees and birds. And as outdoorsmen, we have a great appreciation and understanding for the value of those things, right? And totally. seagrass loss and oyster loss and water clarity. But when you're thinking about a, a politician or a legislator, a representative in Tallahassee or Washington, D.C., they may not, that's not a language they may understand. That's not something they may understand the value of. Um, a lot of them, you know, when they think of the Everglades, they think of a, a, a place and a, and a map and a series of projects in a briefing binder. And when we think of it, you know, we think of the experiences that those places have afforded us and, and how special a place they are. So we realized that we, there was a lot of people like us who wanted to see change that recognized an issue and didn't have a, a way to, to, to make their voices heard. We also realized that we could bring a perspective to this fight not, not just as fishing guides, but as the outdoor community and outdoor industry um, of the value of these places and the impact of this water mismanagement um, in an economic sense, you know, not mm -hmm. just as the fishing guide that makes, you know, 600 to $1,200 to $1,200 a day as a guide, but also the companies, um, the boat manufacturers, the the hotels, the restaurants, the tourism industry, it depends on it. But the companies also around and outside the state, companies like Sims, companies like Yeti, um, you know, that are big companies that are based outside the state, but, but a big part of their business relies on clean water in, in Florida. And um, so we, we realized that that, that that economic impact and jobs that was a language that our policymakers understood and could quantify. And um, so we, we kind of set out to, to create the, the mechanism to have our, our voices heard, the outdoor community, the outdoor industry, and, and just really all of our affected stakeholders within our communities and to, to create a platform for them to, to be heard and engaged and, and try to create that political will that would drive progress. Yeah. Um, Chris, isn't it uh, just your point of economics, right? Like, doesn't Florida make like a 
some absurd amount of money off of just recreational fishing licenses alone, like over like a, uh, I don't know, over a billion dollars, I believe. It, yeah. Not, yeah. Not only that, but you know, the tourism industry in Florida is over $109 billion a year. Um, people don't come to Florida, you know, just because we have Mickey Mouse and Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> like they come here for our water or for our beaches. Um, so that's, that's the big thing is like this, this restoration um, and these efforts are quite literally an investment in Florida's economy and the future of Florida. Um, in addition, uh, you know, we have a thousand people a day moving here. And as of right now, over 8 million Floridians uh, drinking water supply relies on the Biscayne Aquifer, which is recharged and replenished from sheet flow to the Everglades. So we're talking about the impact not only to our our economy and our way of life as outdoorsmen and anglers, but but also to the drinking water supply for over eight million Floridians. Pretty pretty substantial. A thousand people a day. Yeah, that's that's insane. <laughs> I, I I can't imagine that number's probably gone up since uh, COVID, uh, because the promise of living in Florida right now is way higher than a lot of other other states. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, I don't know the number, but I mean, it, it definitely hasn't slowed down. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a really amazing beginning, the Captains for Clean Water. And I think that um, the way y'all reached the legislators and found that connection to the tourism industry and all the partners that it affects, it 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 really is a comprehensive effort. And with any conservation project, you have to think more broadly than your own personal goal. It's definitely gone beyond now with Captains for Clean Water and reached into so many different places because so many people have an interest in the Everglades and in those estuaries and in those uh, amazing places. Y'all came out in 2016. There was a lot of slow movement going on with those projects in the Everglades. What's been going on since then, and how has Captains for Clean Water try to help catalyze those those projects? Yeah, so of the 68 projects, um, there was a couple that were like really the cornerstone um, projects and larger projects that would show that would you know provide the greatest benefit to the system as a whole and not just regional benefit and um one of those is one, one of those is, is bridging of tamiami trail i-75 where it runs from naples across uh, over to miami uh, basically uh or i'm sorry not i-75 <laughs> us-41 yeah where from naples over to miami um basically act as a dam and so they put in a few miles of bridges to to reconnect and the ability of water to flow um, from the central Everglades there down into Everglades National Park. Um, the other is the what's known as the EAA Reservoir, which is a massive reservoir uh, and filter marsh known as the Stormwater Treatment Area or STA um, that mm-hmm. would be south of Lake Okeechobee, um, just on the southern end of the Everglades Agricultural Area. 
it would be intended to take water from Lake Okeechobee uh, during the wet season, store it there and clean it through that filter marsh and be able to meter it out and feed water south into the Everglades during the dry season when it's desperately needed there. Yeah. That project um, is proposed to, to give nearly a, a 50% uh, reduction in discharges to our coasts. So that's a really important project that just had not been prioritized. It was on a list, but it hadn't been authorized. It was not put onto uh, what's called as the, the integrated delivery schedule. It was it was not an authorized project yet, and um, so that was uh, 2016. That was a big push. Was it, it resulted in what was known as, as Senate Bill 10. And um, what's cool, a little personal connection to that is um, when I was down in Florida this past December, mm-hmm. I was trying to get onto the SDAs to duck hunt. And mm-hmm. I had no idea the connection there to how important that area is as far as making sure that the rest of the water system is, is clean. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, the, the water in Lake Okeechobee after years of back pumping from uh, the sugarcane industry and, and decades and years of pollution flowing into the lake from the north, um, it, it, it's polluted. And so we cannot send, nor would we want to send, polluted water into the Everglades, into a, a national park, even though we, we've seen the destruction it causes when it gets sent to Southwest Florida where I live and, and fuels red tide blooms and blue green algae blooms and, you know, apocalyptic type, uh, you know, consequences. So um, that's why cleaning having that, that filter marsh component to the reservoir is really important. Those STAs that you came over to hunt, those were uh, put into place to clean the agricultural pollution from the EAA, from the sugar fields, um, because Prior to those, they were letting their water uh, run south or, or pumping into the lake, and um, it was resulting in uh, really, really uh, great impact to the southern part of the system, to the native lands, um, huge mercury spikes in fur-bearing animals and, and fish uh, down there that, that they relied on for their food sources, uh, you know, Mercury pollution, the, the phosphorus pollution that was resulting in monocultures um, of cattails choking out the native uh, sawgrass mm-hmm. vegetation. So, um, federal judge put in an order called a consent decree that water going into Everglades National Park must meet 10 parts per billion drinking water standard. And um, in an effort to meet that, uh, he or he basically ordered the sugar industry that you know they cannot discharge their polluted water. So um, they entered into an agreement with the state that to to basically the state would buy portions of their land from them at fair market value, would construct these STA wetlands of aquatic plants that would then clean their polluted runoff before it went into. Uh, the Everglades. And so that's the purpose of those. Um, they pay, I think they pay about $25 an acre um, towards those STAs, but the the taxpayers 
um, foot the bill for, you know, the construction and, and, uh, and operation of those. Uh, so it's kind of like taxpayers are paying to clean their pollution. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, again, they, they kind of, they, they've got the system right how they want it. They don't want to see much change. And, and that's where, that's where we come in. That's where the public, public pressure comes in significance of, you know, an advocacy organization doing educational work to, to get people involved. So Chris, in the past, um, six years, what progress have you seen with the sugar companies in general? Have you seen any kind of remorse or uh, reconcile from the, the sugar companies to kind of look, uh, beyond the bottom line to, to help Florida? No, well, they're, I would say today they're fighting harder than ever. Uh, in 2016, when we were pushing for Senate Bill 10 for a 60,000 acre reservoir, um, they had over 68 lobbyists, I believe they had, uh, in Tallahassee fighting that bill. Um, they were able to gut that down from a 60,000 acre reservoir uh, that would the whole thing would act as a, as a filter marsh. Um, to you know, big shallow reservoir to a sixteen, uh, sixty, a sixteen thousand acre reservoir that was deep water that had a, a smaller STA uh, next to it to clean the water. So um, same volume of water, but obviously not a, not as effective um, cleaning that water. They just didn't want to take any more land out of their footprint that they were growing it. And, and that was land that they were growing sugar on, but it's state owned land um, that, that we're basically leasing back to them. But progress that's been made. So no, they, they, they're fighting harder than ever. Um, they have propaganda outlets that uh, consistently attack Captains for Clean Water, Daniel and I, and, and other organizations who are fighting with, with fake news and and uh, kind of political hit pieces and everything else. So I'd say, no, they're, they're fighting harder than they ever have um, to keep stuff where they are. But we have seen progress. We, uh, we did pass Senate Bill 10. And although it's not the, the reservoir that we initially were fighting for, it is a significant step forward. Um, that process was, uh, one, was said to have been dead on arrival in Tallahassee. We were able to mobilize uh, enough supporters where, where that Senate Bill 10 passed um, with uh, such a such a large volume of votes that it could not be vetoed. Um, then that project had to get authorized at the federal level. Everglades Restoration is a partnership between the state and federal government, and it was held up in the White House in the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, we sent series. Uh, we we asked our supporters to to take action and send emails and uh, to Congress and to the White House, and they did. Um, and in a week's time, they sent over 60,000 emails, um, and we were able to get that project moved through the red tape and uh, OMB and, and put what's called the Water Resources and Development Act. And so uh, expedite that process and make that happen. And then um, in addition to that, we've been able to uh, put pressure on Congress to to pressure the Army Corps of Engineers to expedite that permit process. And uh, just last year, now construction on the STA portion of the EAA reservoir has actually started. We've 
begin to blast the, the feeding canals and spreader canals, and they're, they're starting to build that STA, you know, years ahead of what we were told just a few years ago. So, um, yeah, we, we have seen a lot of progress. Um, I would say that we've won a few battles in a massive war, and um, there's, there's, you know, still a lot more to come. We've, we've lost a few. You know, there was water, clean water legislation put in last year that had some really good uh, kind of teeth to hold polluters accountable that was omitted out and of that legislation. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's been a lot of progress um, and there's there's still a long way to go. And, and I think we're very confident today more than ever that uh you know, our supporters not only here in Florida but across the country understand the the value of the Everglades, um, and you know, not only just as as a place here in Florida, but as an iconic fishery and a national treasure. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the the kind of the suite of 68 projects, and you know, some obviously being higher up on the priority list uh, than others. Um, you know, what what do you see as the next uh, step in that 68 project list that you guys are advocating for um, for 2021 and 2022? Well, the biggest the biggest one is continuing getting the actual reservoir itself under construction which that will, um, the, the STA is being constructed by the South Florida Water Management District, so by the state. The uh, reservoir part will be constructed by the Army Corps of Engineers. So um, getting that going, that's the big thing. Fighting for funding for these projects. You've got, you know, largest restoration project we've ever undertaken requires really consistent funding year after year. You know, you can think about if you were building a house and you started building it and, and you knew you had enough money to, you know, clear the lot and, you know, build, put, put the slab and foundation in, but you weren't, you weren't sure if you were going to get enough money to build the walls or after that, if you're going to get enough money to build the roof or, you know, so it's, it's kind of that, that consistent uh, funding from the federal government and the state government is huge and in prioritizing that funding to projects that are authorized and underway so that we can move them along. You know, when you have a limited bucket of funds and you try to spread it out all over everything, nothing happens quickly. Where if we can focus on the the greatest projects with the greatest benefit, apply the funding there and, and you know, as we say, eat an elephant one bite at a time, um, that's, that's kind of the that's the goal. So I think that the big thing is, is funding. The other that we're focusing on right now um, is the, there's an area, eight and a half square mile area. Um, there's a hundred and I think 120 property owners um, that built outside the protection levy down by Miami um, that when water levels will be brought up in the Southern part of the Everglades area would threaten to flood those, those properties. So working on, just got a, a curtain wall authorized at the state to, to stop that so that we can bring water levels up and move them under those bridges that just got completed. Um, Project-wise, those are our big focuses right now. Um, but one of the big things we're, we're pushing on is, is called Lake Okeechobee System Operating Manual. 
Um, it's basically the plan of how Lake Okeechobee's water levels are managed throughout the year. And um, currently, the Army Corps is what the Army Corps of Engineers operates off of. Currently, they're operating off of uh, what's known as LORS 08, or the Lake Okeechobee Regulation Schedule. It's uh, That's from 2008. <laughs> so um, we're, we're working on you know, trying to get the Army Corps to come up with a new plan to manage the lake. You can't manage our way out of the problem entirely until all the infrastructure is complete, but to manage it so that we, you know, don't have quite as much negative impact to the coasts and to the lake and with a focus on sending as much water south to the Everglades and Florida Bay as we possibly can. So those are, those are our priorities right now. That's great. And... I was wondering too, this is a little more of North Florida, um, but up in Mosquito Lagoon, you're seeing kind of some of the similar issues that y'all are facing down in the Everglades with sewage being dumped in there, the loss of grass, and whatever grass is in there is being foraged heavily by a really large manatee population. And is there anything y'all are kind of working on up there as well? Or are y'all have a lot of eggs in the basket down in South Florida and it's been a big deal down there? Yeah. So one of the mistakes we've seen made um, in the past by, you know, organizations trying to, to create change is trying to tackle every single problem that's out there. Yeah. And um, when you go into a policymaker's office, many times you have three minutes to, you know, say, here's here's our ask. Here's this problem. And then, the, OK, what would you like me to do about it is and, and you, you know, we would like you to, you know, vote yes on Senate Bill 10. We would like you to, you know, approve this project. And so Everglades Restoration is this massive suite of projects that will benefit, you know, the whole southern part of Florida. Yeah save a national treasure um so that remains our focus that being said um we we do weigh in on um water quality legislation like senate bill 712 uh last year and and that has a an impact um across the entire state um it would it have an impact on uh you know holding polluters accountable putting fines uh, on municipalities for failing infrastructure, um, some septic to sewer conversion. And so uh, we do we do work on in, in the way that we help kind of those others is, is through that water quality legislation, which is really important. That's how you're going to address the pollution. Yeah. Part. You know, the water conveyance part that we're working on is, is going to be solved through Everglades restoration. The, the pollution part needs to be solved through legislation. Totally. Uh, and yeah, and like Mosquito Lagoon, you know, they have they have a lot of problems there. They, most of our water bodies in Florida suffer from some sort of nutrient pollution, whether it's from biosolids or agricultural uh, fertilizer runoff or septic tanks or sewage infrastructure failures. Um, unfortunately, you know, the Florida that, that I grew up to love is, you know, dying from a thousand cuts. Yeah. And I, I did hear a little bit too about how, um, y'all got a new governor recently in DeSantis and he was talking and campaigning about, 
uh, how he wanted to help fix the water issues in in Florida. Was that campaign talk or has he helped a little bit with this legislation that you've been working on and and made things move a little faster? Yeah, so as soon as he took office, um, you know, we were uh, dealing with the state agency that that, uh, is responsible for Everglades Restoration, which is the South Florida Water Management District. Mm -hmm. Their governing board, the, the, the board that, you know, directs that agency is appointed by the governor and their existing board um, was very uh, sympathetic to the sugar industry. And we were, we were, it was like going up against a firewall every time we went to speak there. And um, 48 hours after DeSantis took office, he called for the resignation of the entire board. Wow. Uh, that had never been done before. Appointed entirely new governing to that agency who they they have uh, remained laser focused on Everglades restoration and getting water sending south so did that um, he's uh, set record funding uh, from the state uh, for the past two years um, so yeah he, he definitely has uh, helped us really get the ball rolling um, um, there you know a lot of the legislation gets put together in the house and the senate uh and then has to make its way through there and get signed off on by the governor but he's definitely taken some some bold steps to to advance everglades restoration very cool so for us is we're we operate in kind of the college realm um and have clubs we have how many clubs in florida andrew we have a couple Um, yeah several uh i would say probably four or five but how can how can a college kid or the younger people in interested in fly fishing, interested in the Everglades, what's some ways that they can get involved and on a local level and even people that are not near Florida um, to help with, with y'all's work? Yeah, great question. It's actually critical that um, people outside of Florida get involved. Like I said, it's a a state and federal partnership. So we need the support of the other 49 states saying we must fund Everglades restoration to save a national treasure. No different than if Yellowstone or Yosemite was, was threatening to collapse, right? You don't have to look at, look at Pebble Mine too. the effort from all over the, the country. Exactly. So that exact example. Um, so the biggest thing they can do is get involved is to, is to educate themselves to learn about the, these efforts. You can do that by signing up for our uh, newsletter on our website. It doesn't cost anything. Um, you can sign up to become a member uh, of our organization. It's 30 bucks. It's, it's not much, you know, spend that in a weekend drinking some beers. <laughs> You know, so 30 bucks for a year's membership. Um, we, you know, the hats that I'm wearing, the Captains for Clean Water hat, uh, the, the point of that is that's a, that's a symbol and a, and a conversation starter, right? So when you walk totally. into a flop shop or you walk into a restaurant and say, hey, what's that Captains for Clean Water? It's, oh, it's organization fighting to save the Everglades. You should check it out. And so um, those are all very easy ways um, to get involved and help spread the message um and and it's and it's very important you know when we can go in you know if you had every person in your clubs became a member of captains for clean water and that's you know hundreds or thousands of people 
um, you go into a legislator's office and tell them, look, we have, you know, this many, we're in Washington, D.C., and we have, you know, this many thousand members from across the country that want to see, you know, see this move forward. That carries a lot of weight. And you, you mentioned Pebble Mine. We actually worked on a project with Trout Unlimited in Save Bristol Bay um, called Everyone in Between. We made a film uh, called Everyone in Between and about a fishing guide here um, who, who guides for tarpon in Florida and grew up fishing in the Everglades to then goes and guides for trout and salmon in uh, Alaska and Bristol Bay. And the point, the whole point of that film and the reason we did it was to bring awareness to the Everglades by people who were familiar with cold water fishery and, and, and Bristol Bay and to bring awareness to Bristol Bay issues and the pebble mine to people who were in Florida and aware of those issues. And hence the name, everyone in between. You've yeah. got these two iconic fisheries on opposite corners of the, uh, the con- country and uh, continent. And, uh, and, and it's, and it's going to take everyone in between to save them. If, if just the people in Florida are involved in the Everglades, we, w- it, we will not be successful. And if just the people in Alaska were fighting the pebble mine, they would not be successful. It's going to take a con- conceded effort across the entire country um, to, to, to see success and in, in basically in all those arenas. And so, uh, so yeah, so, so that was something that's, that's something that I think is important that we need support here in Florida. We need support across the country and, and it's pretty easy, you know, go on our website, captainsforcleanwater.org, uh, sign up for the newsletter, uh, become a member, yeah. get a hat, whatever. Totally. And I think, I think we would be doing everyone, uh, wrong if we didn't hear you were guiding for a long time, uh, probably one of your favorite Everglades fishing stories because that's a place I've always wanted to go. I was so close all summer and didn't get to go fish because I was working 80 hours a week. But I, I think everyone would really appreciate a story about some, uh, some fishing down there. And I mean, until you've, you know, crept up on a 160 pound tarpon laying in two foot of water, sleeping and you know dropped a fly across its nose and had them explode on that thing like a bear trap you know uh i don't know that's something you can even describe um i've had a couple of experiences where i've run out uh to the coast in the very southern part of the glades and found acres i mean i don't know it had to be tens of thousands of tarpon just exploding on every cast um i've you know being down there and the fishing experience i remember one day i ran down and and had no no intel of what was going on looking around looking around and we're floating uh outside of uh east cape and way off maybe two miles off i kept seeing what i thought was some flashes and decided it was in a we we're in a little hell space skiff and decided it was calm we'd run out there and as we ran out there all of a sudden we realized this was this was just acres of tarpon steamrolling towards um the shark river basically wow. and uh Ponce inlet area and uh we followed those fish in and i don't know 
it, it we we fished them for four or five hours and and i think we i think we jumped over 70 tarpon holy crap I mean, it was just <laughs> and we we're throwing great big jigs and lures um and you know so that you're reeling them as fast as you can and they're like boiling on these things and you get it 20 feet from the boat and stop it and they just crush it and you know they'd run and make a couple jumps and throw the lure and you'd be reeling it back in and another one would eat it and it was insane and uh, did that and went back to, to our camp. We we're camping on a cheeky down there. And, um, another one of the days we run out, we were running out the shark river and the shark river, for those of you who haven't been there, it's got like some of the tallest mangroves in the world. I mean, they're like 60 feet tall, red mangrove trees and going out and coming into the current up the river was this line of loggerhead sea turtles. And it had to have been probably 50 or 60 sea turtles turtles uh spread out over like a a mile of the river there that were all in a line heads coming up out of the water breathing looking at you and they were all going in on some historic migration you know that their instincts were telling them to do and it was yeah play times like that it's just like it's so incredible to be down there and like immersed in in that environment it's uh it's a pretty special place man pretty special place that is really special. And you mentioned quickly about the y'all are out on a Hell's Bay skiff. And correct me if I'm wrong, but y'all are doing a raffle with a Hell's Bay boat right now with, with Orvis and Hell's Bay. Yeah. Yeah. Hell's Bay um, has been a big supporter of ours, as has Orvis ever since we started. And, and Sims and Costa, Yeti, a bunch of unbelievable companies that that back us um but hell's bay uh built us a boat this year um and it's the first ever orvis edition hell's bay it's all carbon fiber uh, 17.8 pro with custom orvis badging and uh and and kind of details to the boat custom made uh, boatmaster trailer that's all totally linexed the entire trailer's linexed um has raymarine electronics mercury racing put one of the first mercury racing 60s uh, out to the market on the boat uh, raymarine axiom power pole uh, sea deck um yeti's got a bunch of stuff in there with it traeger so yeah pretty uh, pretty cool package they did that to help uh, help raise funds for our fight and um, you can buy those raffle tickets for, for that boat. They're 50 bucks a piece on our website and uh, we're going to be drawing that ticket at ICAST this year in July. Yeah, it's a beautiful boat. I uh, I definitely would love that boat. <laughs> it's Imagine really- if you won that boat for $50 raffle ticket. Yeah, that would be so sweet. What a, what a deal and you're helping conserve uh, and protect the, the Everglades at the same time. Um, yeah. But it was really great uh, having you on, Chris, and hearing anything else you want to plug other than the, the newsletter and the, and the membership and stuff. How can people find y'all uh, on social media and, and everything? Yeah, follow us on social media, share share out our pages to all of your friends. That's huge. The the bigger voice and audience we have on social, um, the greater impact we can have when we do have a call to action. So we're on Instagram, Captains for Clean Water. Uh, we're on Facebook, Captains for Clean Water. 
and uh, and then you can go to our website, captainsforcleanwater.org. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to have everybody listen and join us in our fight to save the Everglades. Absolutely. And it was really great talking to you. I learned a lot, I'm sure. All of y'all will uh, will learn a lot and take a lot from this. Uh, it's really a collective effort from everyone to make sure we keep all these fish uh, happy and clean water, and whether it's in salt or fresh. Uh, but yeah, everyone, thanks for listening. It's great having you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Yeah.